listening to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. It's <laughs> December 17th, 2013. Tiny Tim time. <laughs> Happy birthday, Pope Francis. He's 77. How's that for a date? Yes. I don't know. Oh, 17 December. Uh, so many things this week of the year drawing to a close. To tote up the losses and the gains. Oh, so many gone. So many anniversaries. Oh, you know, JFK, 50 years, Shady Hook, one year. The last giant of the Moses generation. That was the biggie this week, at least on uh, the media, except for the Fox Network. <laughs> I think I think they put Nelson Mandela's uh, demise at the bottom of the screen, you know, in that little strip that runs at the bottom of the screen, but... All the other major networks uh, gave us, what, documentaries. Um, there was um, reruns of the the movie, the one with Sidney Poitier as uh, Mandela and um, uh, Michael Caine as de Klerk. Actually, a pretty good picture. I thought the... Uh, the general effect, I thought it would be good for high school children at the same time. I hope that uh, teachers will include a documentary upside right alongside it because a movie can only give you an impression or a, a glimmer. Uh, Mandela's life can now be seen as a foundation stone the stone on which his nation has been built can grow. Uh, it's such a beautiful uh, land, South Africa. Surely it's now possible for all of its citizens to thrive and cope with all these modern problems, the 21st century, poverty and the rest of it. That's where Pope Francis comes in. Uh He's not very good on women, but I do think he uh, he has the right idea if he starts with poverty. Anyway, 
I think that Nelson Mandela is special or that he had a unique life, uh, even among history's heroes, because he was um, a good man. Somebody somewhere once said that a great man cannot be a good man. You know how that is. Uh, invariably, uh, a great man, Chairman Mao, for example, has to do almost as many wicked things as good things in order to save, save his country. But uh, Nelson didn't have to do that. In his case, um, that wasn't true. He could somehow, somehow do the right thing right from the beginning. I don't know how that worked out, and I don't know where it came from. Uh, he's gone to his ancestors now, and I think, I think that he, what is it? I, I like to imagine that they are the ones who told him what he should do. And that he he had really ancient wisdom. Uh, anyway, 95 years is a long, long life, especially if you've been chosen to lead your nation. Uh, I don't know, I suppose even Gandhi was human, but Nelson Mandela seems to have been the noblest, the noblest of them all, right? Uh if his capacity to fight for the right was awesome, his capacity to dance was <laughs> was what I liked, his style, yes. Emma Goldman used to say, I don't want a revolution if I can't dance. That's the picture I have in my mind, a uh, picture of him dancing there on the stages, you know, when he was being, uh, when he was being acclaimed, when he came back to his uh, rightful place at the head of the nation. Uh, he's so endearing. I think most of us understand that that music, song, that's the secret of the true revolution. It's, what is it? It's a spirit, revolutionary spirit. It always comes to us, descends to the earth through the songs, the music of the people uh, I want to start with a story today, uh, my Christmas story. It's a children's classic written in the 1930s, and uh, I like to read it at Christmas time. Uh, it's <laughs> it's a, a terrible, terrible book. It's been banned, and it's supposed to be propaganda. Hitler burned it, I think, as he... Anyway, it was banned in Germany, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer called this little book a threat to the children of America, using words like anarchy, you know. Oh, dear. Uh, I always buy a few copies at Christmas time, uh, give them to children I know. The book, of course, is the story of... Ferdinand the Bull by Monroe Leaf, last name spelled L-E-A-F, Monroe. The drawings are by Robert Lawson. I was looking at the drawings the other day. There's another book came out, you know, when the copyright on this one ran out. Uh, someone ran right out and 
did a, a spin on the story of Ferdinand. They wrote a book called Ferdinand and the Bullies, and they changed it all around so that uh, Ferdinand became a, uh, what is it, a heroic macho guy, you know. He fought the bullies, that kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> I think it's wonderful, except that the copy that I have of Ferdinand and the Bullies, um, I think, yes, it's it comes from a... Uh, a school. Somebody gave it to me. Uh, it's a little boy's name in the book, and it was given to him as a reader in elementary school. Froze my blood. The pictures in it, of course, are Disney-esque. Now, the original masterpiece, The Story of Ferdinand by Monroe Deeve, is a very, very short fable. My children were very fond of it. We used to recite it out loud. Once upon a time in Spain, there was a little bull, and his name was Ferdinand. All the other little bulls he lived with would run and jump and butt their heads together, but not Ferdinand. He liked to sit just quietly and smell the flowers. He had a favorite spot out in the pasture under a cork tree. It was his favorite tree, and he would sit in its shade all day and smell the flowers. I have to break in with a footnote here. The tree has little clusters of the kind of corks, you know, you find in wine bottles. My mother always said that that was supposed to imply that Ferdinand uh, was perfectly willing to have a drink. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, he was stoned. Anyway, let us continue uh, with the story. Sometimes his mother, who was a cow, would worry about him. She was afraid he would be lonesome all by himself. Why don't you run and play with the other little bulls and skip and butt your head, she would say. But Ferdinand would shake his head. I like it better here, where I can sit, just quietly and smell the flowers. His mother saw that he was not lonesome, and because she was an understanding mother, even though she was a cow, she let him just sit there and be happy. As the years went by, Ferdinand grew and grew until he was very big and strong. In this picture, this illustration, there are little marks on a tree, Ferdinand, at one, one month, three months, one year, and then two years, right? There's a vulture at the top of the tree looking down at him. Anyway, all the other bulls who had grown up with Ferdinand in the same pasture, would fight each other all day. They would butt each other and stick each other with their horns. What they wanted most of all was to be picked to fight at the bullfights in Madrid. 
but not Ferdinand. He still liked to sit just quietly under the cork tree and smell the flowers. One day five men came in very funny hats to pick the biggest, fastest, roughest bull to fight in the bullfights in Madrid. All the other bulls ran around snorting and budding and leaping and jumping so the men would think that they were very, very strong and fierce and pick them. Ferdinand knew that they wouldn't pick him, and he didn't care, so he went out to his favorite cork tree to sit down. We see him walking off to his tree, looking at the butterflies. Ferdinand didn't look where he was sitting, and instead of sitting on the nice, cool grass in the shade, he sat on a bumblebee. Well, if you were a bumblebee and a bull sat on you, what would you do? You would sting him, and that is just what this bee did to Ferdinand. <laughs> the look on Ferdinand's face is quite shocking. Wow, did it hurt? Ferdinand jumped up with a snort. He ran around puffing and snorting, butting and pawing the ground as if he were crazy. Well, the five men saw him. They all shouted with joy. Here was the largest and fiercest bull of all. Just the one for the bullfights in Madrid. So, they took him away for the bullfight day in a cart. What a day it was. Flags were flying. Bands were playing. All the lovely ladies had flowers in their hair. They had a parade into the bull ring. First came the banderillos with the long, sharp pins with the ribbons on them to stick in the bull and make him mad. Then... Then came the picadors who rode skinny horses, and they had long spears to stick in the bull and make him madder. Then came the matador, the proudest of all. He thought he was very handsome and bowed to the ladies. He had a red cape and a sword and was supposed to stick the bull last of all. And then came the bull. And you know who that was, don't you? Ferdinand. It's a wonderful picture of the entrance to the bull ring. Ferdinand poking his little head around the corner where the gates open. Little tiny guy. They called him Ferdinand the Fierce, all the banderillos were afraid of him, and the picadores were afraid of him, and the matador was scared stiff. Ferdinand ran to the middle of the ring. Everyone shouted and clapped. 
because they thought he was going to fight fiercely and butt and snort and stick his horns around. But not Ferdinand. When he got to the middle of the ring, he saw the flowers in all the lovely lady's hair, and he just sat down quietly and smelled. He wouldn't fight and be fierce, no matter what they did. He just sat and smelled, and the banderillas were mad, and the picadores were madder, and the matador was so mad, he cried because he couldn't show off with his cape and his sword. <laughs> we see them all stamping their feet and going away. <laughs> so they had to take Fernand home. And for all I know, he is sitting there still under his favorite cork tree, smelling the flowers just quietly. He is very happy. Now, apparently that uh, story was, was considered by some folks to be a, uh, a bunch of pacifist propaganda. I didn't know this. I just read the story to my two little boys when they were children. And I used to do the the uh, the bit, like the mother who was the cow, yes, uh, say, well, why don't you go out and butt your heads together like all the other little bulls. <laughs> go out and, and uh, you know, do the vroom, vroom thing. Uh, I don't know. I, I find it fascinating that uh, there were people around in the 1930s, who felt that this book would corrupt children. Uh, as I said, I always buy copies at Christmas time for children I know. I was at Half Price Books last week, and they don't have any copies. I'm down to two. <laughs> anyway, I recommend it highly. And I have another list of books that, oh, well, I don't know if I have time for them all, but... Uh, Next Tuesday, I'll be back. I have a uh, uh, a list, yes, a wonderful list. All the Beatrix Potter books and all the Oz books. There's a wonderful edition, centennial edition of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. It's all full of essays by Ray Bradbury, John Updike, and Gore Vidal. You know, there was a... Uh, uh, class analysis <laughs> of the Wizard of Oz. Uh, yeah, the Scarecrow was the farmers and so on and so on. Um, the other thing was, let's see. Oh, yes. There's a new movie I haven't seen, so don't know whether to recommend it or not. It's about Mary Poppins. P.L. Travers was the name of the author. She uh, is played by Emma Thompson in this movie. I believe they said it's opening the 20th, maybe the 24th. Maybe I've got that wrong. Anyway, we'll be in theaters soon. And uh, Emma Thompson adores the Mary Poppins books. Uh, I think this is a, well, a sort of biography of the author who was apparently kind of a Mary Poppins. At least Emma Thompson thinks so. She complained. She complained about having to uh, 
wear her hair short and permed. She was on television the other night looking very glamorous, I think, to counteract the way she looks in the film. She did look pretty silly in the clips they showed. Uh, she has this uh, brown dyed hair all tightly curled up. Anyway, Emma Thompson did a film called Nanny McPhee. Ah, mixed feelings about that one. It was about a very ugly nanny whose looks improve as the children begin to behave better. Uh, they learn to cooperate. And the first thing to go is um, Nanny McPhee's large wart. There's a big wart on her face, I think, somewhere around the mouth. Uh, she uses a cane that's a kind of wand, stamps it on the ground, and sparks fly. Colin Firth was in that movie, I think. There may be two of those. I've only seen the first one. Uh, anyway, the new picture is titled, I think this is the title, Saving Mr. Banks. It's got Mr. Banks in it. Saving? Was it saving? Yes, I think so. Couldn't be rescuing. You remember that Mr. Banks, Mr. and Mrs. Banks, were the parents of Jane and Michael Banks, the two children who needed Mary Poppins to come and straighten them out. Uh, <laughs> apparently, P.L. Travers, the author, had a great deal of difficulty with Walt Disney when that movie was made. Big brouhaha. I, I don't know. I, there was a whole bunch of gossip about her refusing to have her name on the finished product. Uh, you know, that uh, musical with Julie Andrews. Uh, it was a musical, for goodness sakes. It wasn't what the uh, books were about. But uh, it certainly had its, had its moments. Uh, now, the conflict with Disney, I think, will make a pretty dicey movie. Uh, it's all about the ways writers struggle to get a movie that at least captures the spirit of their books. Uh, Emma Thompson, oh dear, I'm so interested in her because she's, what is it, she's, she's on that list of uh, British actresses who really give a damn. You know, Glenda Jackson, <laughs> she's now a member of Parliament. Uh, oh, Judy Davis, uh, and of course, the... Uh, the grand dame, Kate Blanchett. Anyway, after she divorced, after Emma Thompson divorced Kenneth Branagh, she had a child, uh, a little girl named Jane. She, <laughs> she used to say, yes, Jane.com was her name. The, uh, the father was Greg Wise, an actor. You will remember him playing the cad in Sense and Sensibility. Uh, <laughs> I think that Emma Thompson lives in a kind of woman-centered world with her mother, Phyllida Law, and her sister, Sophie Thompson. Uh, see, Sophie Thompson, I was watching her last night in Gosford Park. She plays the uh, kitchen maid. Oh, in Persuasion, wonderful role in uh, Jane Austen's Persuasion. She played the hypochondriacal sister of uh, Emma, the central character in... Uh, oh, excuse me, Anne, 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 pardon me, pardon me. Anne, Anne's sister. 
She complains about everything. You know the sort of mother who mm -hmm, makes everybody around her uh, take care of her needs. Anyway, Sophie Thompson. So many fascinating things she has done. And Emma Thompson, I think I first noticed her years and years ago in a film about... Uh, with her husband about the wars. Anyway, um, I have a pages and pages of lists. I don't really think I should take time to tell you all about all these movies. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll synthesize some of that. Uh, you know, you can always look them up on the net if you want to watch them. And I have to tell you all about Doris Lessing, who has left us. Uh, she came to KPFA once and... She'd been invited onto the morning show. I didn't know that. And uh, <laughs> she was left standing in the street there. I <laughs> I had hysterics. If they'd told me, I would have been out there with a bouquet of roses. Uh, and then I have uh, my little notebook here is full of pages about Joan Fontaine uh, and Peter O'Toole. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. Uh, try Joan Fontaine's movie, The Constant Nymph. Really, 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 uh, almost maudlin. It shattered my psyche when I was ten years old. She's in love with uh, Charles Boyer, and she dies in the end, you know. <laughs> uh, mostly, I remember Joan Fontaine for Jane Eyre. Uh, let's see, Jane Eyre, that was the one with Orson Welles. Terrific picture. And then, of course, uh, well, actually, Liz Taylor was in Jane Eyre. She played Helen, the little child who dies in the uh, girls' school. And uh, Liz Taylor was also in uh, Ivanhoe, along with Joan Fontaine, the golden girl. And then Liz Taylor played the, what is it, green velvet <laughs> beauty with the black, black hair, the... Uh, the Jewess who uh, is also in love with the leading man, whose name I won't even mention. Anyway, Peter O'Toole, I wanted to tell you just one thing, because there's so much to say about dear old Peter O'Toole. Uh, there's a recent film that doesn't seem to be getting uh, a great deal of distribution. I did see it on television on um, one of the cable channels. It's called Dean Spanley. That's the first word is Dean, D-E-A-N. And it's S-P-A-N-L-E-Y. And it's it's got all the, the usual suspects, all the great British actors, or several of them. And uh, <laughs> it's really about the transmigration of the soul. It seems that Peter O'Toole had a little dog when he was a... A young boy, and uh, this dog is reincarnated in the psyche of this Dean Spanley. And Peter O'Toole loved that dog in his childhood, and uh, after many glasses of Tokai, Dean Spanley starts to speak and act as if he were the little dog. <laughs> it's fabulous. I don't know why this movie knocked me out, but uh, the truth is. Uh, it is a sentimental movie. By the end of it, Peter O'Toole has come to accept the death of his son in the war. Somehow or another, the memory of the dog 
triggers his feelings and he's able to uh, cope with the pain of his life. <laughs> his son was the one who took him to see an, uh, I believe, an East Indian who talked about the transmigration of the soul. Anyway, uh, oh dear, I don't have time to tell you about the movie Devotion, all about the Brontes. Yes, that's... Uh, all oh, these actresses back in the 30s and 40s, I think I can say that they, they molded my soul. I'll be back on the air uh, next Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of the Hey everyone, this is Mitch Jeserich with Letters and Politics. Hope you are doing well at the end of the year and have a great idea for the beginning of the year. And that is, come with me to see economist Richard Wolf, author of Capitalism Hits the Fan. He's going to be speaking at the First Congregational Church of Berkeley on Wednesday, January 15th at 7.30 p.m. His topic will be economic crisis and system decline, what we can do. If you're familiar with Richard Wolf, well, then you know that you can expect original, reassuringly trustworthy analysis delivered in a blunt style laced with refreshing wit. I'll be introducing Richard Wolf. It's a KPFA benefit, and it is wheelchair accessible. The church is at 2345 Channing. That's just off Dana. Advanced tickets are available at brownpapertickets.com and at our supportive independent bookstores. That's January 15th. Richard Wolf. hope to see you there.